Welcome to Tales from the Fourth Trimester, a podcast dedicated to the beauty and brutality of new motherhood. I'm your host, Naomi Krisalakis, and I'm a postpartum doula and cook in Sydney, Australia. My service, Cocoon, provides good food and a helping hand for new mummers. Join me as I chat to women about what happened after they brought their baby home and interview experts for their wisdom, because giving birth is just the beginning. This is episode two of Tales from the Fourth Trimester, and I'm talking to Bronwyn Davies today, who's a home visiting midwife in the New South Wales public hospital system. She also happens to have been my home visiting midwife. Um, if you'd like to find out more about my business, Cocoon, for food delivery or in-home support for mums in Sydney, you can check out cocoonbynaomi.com. I'm on Instagram at cocoonbynaomi. Um, Just a quick note uh, to say that there are some planes overhead and apologies for those interruptions. We did our best. Hope you enjoy the episode. I'm sitting down with the lovely Bron. (laughs) who was my home visiting midwife after I gave birth to Margot Mm -hmm. and is still a home visiting midwife. It was a happy meeting. (laughs) It was a happy meeting. We got to know each other very intimately, very quickly. (laughs) So I visited you for three days. Yep. Got to know you and Margot. Yep. That was lovely. Yeah. It was, um, for me, I really distinctly remember being so grateful for your visits mm. and just feeling so lost that first week coming out of hospital and still so kind of beat up by the whole birth experience. Yeah. I, I think uh, that's the thing. So much focus is put on to the birth and, and I think that's a good focus to have, but it's like focusing on the wedding and forgetting about the marriage. Yeah. And I think that um, the importance of postnatal care is can't be underestimated yeah absolutely so do you want to just tell us a little bit about what you do when you go in and meet a woman how typically how um how soon after the birth oh it can be anywhere from some women can go home from delivery suite so Mm -hmm. they could be home six hours after the baby's born um but mostly I would be seeing them sort of 24 to 48 hours after the baby's born. So still very fresh. Um, so look, every story is different. It's really hard to generalise about what I do. Yeah. I suppose my my main role is to normalise what's happening. Um, I'm obviously there to assess the mother's physical well-being and the baby's physical well-being. Um, I I also am there to help with any feeding, and that can be bottle feeding as well as breastfeeding. I think sometimes bottle-fed mothers get a little bit neglected because the focus is very much on breastfeeding, which is good, but for some women that's not what they can or want to do. Um, And also just checking that the family unit is... It's going well. That's mm. really it. Just making sure that everything is, is going well. I go into many, many homes, though, where culturally there's a lot of differences. 
So there's a lot of family support in some homes and there's very little family support in others. Um, I'm also a conduit to other supports in the community, be it mental health or social work, um, extended visiting for, by child and family health. So I'm kind of there to assess how things are going. For the most part, things go really well. Yep. Things are predictably as they should be, you mm. know. There's the full breast, there's the maybe a bit of jaundice in the baby. All of those things, um, you know, we assess as the days go by and, and everything's fine. So I usually say goodbye to people, uh, usually about day six or seven. Um, I can be still visiting women up to day eight or ten, but that would be rare. Mm. And that's usually, I would, because it, I'm autonomous, so I can decide whether I continue visiting women. Uh, so I, I would only be continuing to visit if I feel I could bring about some change in something, either uh, feeding issues or uh, the baby might have had some ongoing jaundice problems that we're just wanting to make sure that it's gone. So basically that's it. That's my job. Mm -hmm. As I said, for the most part, very predictable. Every now and then there's a curveball. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Otherwise it's um, it's a dream job, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a dream job. I'm very lucky. Must be very interesting. Yeah, it is. Going into all these different setups and yeah. combinations and yeah. cultures. And, and the grandmas, <laughs> you know, the grandmas who, you know, have raised their own children. Some of them have raised many children. So I have to be respectful of mm. how they've done that and how they feel things should be done. But I obviously have to be careful that um, what's happening is best practice, that there's no harm being done in some of the things they have um, some cultures like to give teas to their babies. Mm. Well, that's really not advised. So you have to be careful in the way you say that that's not a good idea so that they mm. don't feel bad about giving that advice. Um, there's a lot of uh, cultures that don't believe in washing after the baby's been born because they've come from environments where there weren't antibiotics or there wasn't safe water. So those things um, can be advised, you know, to mm, mm. to to wash because yeah. we know that that's beneficial. Yeah. A lot of massage happens in some homes, which yeah, I think is a wonderful you telling thing. Telling me about that, I'm so jealous. <laughs> the Nepalese women, you know, the babies are massaged, they're massaged. Everybody's oh, covered in oil, yeah, and they're all very, very relaxed. <laughs> the milk seems to flow very well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. And the foods, some cultures have certain foods. You know, the Chinese have the chicken feet soup and mm. um, some foods they, they don't think are a good idea because they might create extra wind in the baby. Mm -hmm. Wind seems to be a big issue in some cultures. Um, wor worried about wind. <laughs> As I say, wind is life. <laughs> I remember you saying that to me. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> Burping and farting. I must say the same thing everywhere I go. <laughs> I do like to make it sound fresh. <laughs> no, I remember that. Is there, other than <laughs> worried about wind, is there anything, and wind is life, is there anything that you find yourself saying again and again to women to reassure them or to give advise them? Uh, I think expectation these days that somehow... Um, 
not so much in a lot of my cohort, but I think in some areas, this uh, obsession with baby's sleep mm. and the expectation that somehow babies will be fully independent and able to sleep uh, well away from parents from a very early age really worries me. Mm. Um, the, the thought now is, of course, the closer your baby is to you, the safer that baby will be. Your interpretation of how you have your baby close to you is up to you as a family. But it can be a cot in the room, it can be a crib beside your bed, it can be the baby in bed with you. But now there's a lot of talk about this. We understand that there are safer options with women who decide to co-sleep. A lot of the cohort I look after, culturally, babies are always going to be in bed with the mothers yep. because that's where they've been since time immemorial. Yeah. So just to, so just to clarify, when you say co-sleep, it's bed sharing. Bed sharing, yeah. 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 So obviously, like anything in life, nothing is completely safe. There are safer ways to do things. I always say it's a bit like driving a car. It's a very dangerous thing to do, but we do things to make it safer. Oh, yeah. So we follow a, spy, a speed limit, we have a licence, we wear a seatbelt. All the things that you know will make it a safer experience. Yeah. And it's the same with uh, bed sharing. Yeah. So there's a lot of change in thoughts now because we realise that people will sleep with their babies at some stage. Uh, so I would rather talk to them about um, things to watch out for and to be careful about. But I'll often go into homes where um, women are trying desperately to get their babies to sleep away from them. Mm. Babies have a very strong sense of smell and a very strong sense that their mother is not near them, and that's the baby who will cry, and that's called an abandonment cry. So they want their mother to come back to them, or the caregiver to come back to them, and so that's an, a normal human requirement. Um, I listen to, I've been to a lot of conferences with a, um, a gentleman called James McKenna who mm -hmm. speaks, mm -hmm. and I... I find him very engaging because he he says the things that I have innately as a midwife and as a mother felt over the years and that um, we are a carrying species, we are a contact species and so trying to separate ourselves from our infants or our newborns is, is counterintuitive. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the big things I remember when you came to visit me. There were two major things that really helped me. One was... You know, I'd just started breastfeeding and it was hard work and my nipples were really sore. <laughs> and I remember you just get you were just like just just use the nipple shield. And I was angsting about oh nipple confusion and I don't know why I was angsting about whatever I was angsting about, but you were just like, just try it, we'll just use it for a week. And mm. I don't even think I used it for the full no. week. But it was um yeah, it really helped me yeah. get over that hump of, you know, that new breastfeeding. That was the first thing. The second thing was you. we started talking about co-sleeping and up until that point, you know, I really hadn't considered it as an option, but I could see how absolutely sleep-deprived and exhausted I was and how much better it would be. Like I'd been taught in the hospital how to do the sideline feed mm -hmm. and how nice it would be just to fall asleep and, you know, that's it. And I remember you saying... Um, you know, have a look at have a look at James McKenna's research, mm. and go and look at those studies that he's done, and just do the reading and just check it out and mm. see what you know mm. your instinct says. And 
I mean, I still did plenty of angsting about it um, mm. in those early days, but that's what led us to bed share mm. with Margot, and that's what I think really saved my sanity. Like I was definitely <laughs> not doing well before. No, the because your sleep is good. You, you, I mean, I did it with my first child over mm. 39 years ago. I was a midwife already, but... For me, I didn't even consider that my child would even be in the same room as me. We had the nursery. It was all beautiful. And I would get up and down like a yo-yo all night. And I I don't know how I survived the first 18 months, really. Because he would sleep maybe for an hour, hour and a half. And then, of course, he would look for me. Mm. So I'd go in, I'd feed, I'd do the whole thing again, over and over. And... All he wanted to do was to be with me. Yeah. So by the time my second child arrived, I had realised that if I was to get any kind of sleep and be any kind of mother for my hyperactive two-and-a-half-year-old, <laughs> I had to have her with me. Mm. Well, she stayed with me for six months and then went to her own bed at, at six yeah. months yeah. and at 17 months handed me a nappy with a very offended look on her face and said, no more nappies, mummy. It was misindependence from yeah. the very beginning. Yeah. So what a difference with a child allowed to make the decision of when to go mm. rather than being pushed away. Mm. And look, every now and then I meet a baby who loves to sleep in its own cot. Yeah. And I'm not going to force a mother to sleep with that baby if her baby is more than happy to stay in a cot by itself. But having a baby closer to you can be the answer to Mm. a lot of sleep deprivation. Mm. And I do get very concerned about this sleep training movement because uh, I think it's setting up an expectation in women's minds that somehow their baby um, is broken, as I've heard said, and that it needs fixing. Yeah. Um, and I think it can cause more grief for a new mother to have this expectation set up that somehow she's failed um, because her baby does not want to sleep independently away mm. from her. Mm. What do you think when you go into the different homes? Do you see any kind of commonality with women who are... You know, going with the flow and a little more relaxed and happy about, you know, what is inevitably a really difficult period. I think they've got good family supports, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. They've come from cultures where they don't question that a baby wants to be with its mother, yeah. that they just hang out with their babies, um, that they don't time things, yeah. they don't predict behaviour. You know, my baby should be doing this or will do that. They just realise. One of the common things I do say to people is that this baby's not the same baby as yesterday and it's not the same baby as tomorrow. So you can't possibly make rules and regulations around this baby's behaviour. Constantly changing, constantly evolving. And you just have to hang out with that baby and, and be there. Support it with whatever food you're going to give it and just... Enjoy it because it's a very brief moment in your life. Mm. And I think when you look back on it, as I'm sure you're looking back now um, with Margot, you feel like you're never going to get out of that yeah. initial stage. Yeah. But then it's gone in an absolute oh, blink. Abs- and you can barely mm. remember it. I mean, mm. of course, I remember some things really distinctly, but mm. overall it's kind of a blur. Mm. Well, there's actually a hormone released by the placenta <coughs> that acts as an amnesic. And I think we very wouldn't, smart. there wouldn't be so many of us. 
<laughs> yeah. If we remembered with such clarity. <laughs> I'm sure of it. I remember the enough birth. to be slightly put off a second. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's that's it. As women, we we have to have those memories blurred around the edges a little. Yeah. Um, and hopefully the memories you do have are positive ones. You're not mm. all negative. Mm. Mm. You mentioned um, massage, which yeah. is such a lovely mm. practice that you see in some cultures. Are there any other things that you've noticed in all the different people that you visited that you thought were particularly nice practices or postpartum traditions? Yeah, some, some cultures have things they do on certain days. Mm. Uh, Nepalese people um, have a... I don't know whether you'd call it a baby naming uh, ceremony, and I'm not sure quite what day it falls on. It, I think it might be day seven because mm-hmm. I sometimes witness it, so mm-hmm. I'm probably still visiting. Uh, it involves lighting um, candles and um, having special foods. Uh, they also, apparently, the Nepalese people have a weaning celebration. So when the baby has its first mouthful of solid food, uh, they have a big family celebration. It's How nice sweet. is that? Yeah. yeah, it is very nice. Yeah. Oh, there's a there's a lot of a lot of sweets, <laughs> a lot of sweets involved uh, from a lot of cultures. So having something sweet associated with uh, welcoming the baby, um, I gained ten kilos when I first started this <laughs> job. So I learnt to say um, that I'll have it later and take yeah. it with me. Yeah. Um, yes. Food. Food is often associated with having yeah. babies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, special foods. Special foods. Yeah, special foods is good. Um, so other than sleep, I mean, breastfeeding is one of those big ones that mm. you, well, certainly you helped me out with and I'm sure you help a lot of women out with because that's really mm. in the, that first... What's well, my passion. Yeah. yeah. So why are you passionate about breastfeeding? Uh... Well, I think, I think it's just such, if it can work, and for some women it can't, but if it can work, it, there's nothing easier or more wonderful. And for some women it can be a bit rocky initially, but once they get it, it's the best thing. Mm. Um, I think the health benefits for women and for babies are innumerable, and I could probably bore you witless about my lactation facts. <laughs> Well, we do often like swap little I know. links to. Did you know that breast milk can? And I remember I was looking back at some of our messages, and I was talking to you about how I got uh, like a conjunctivitis, and I squirted my own breast milk in my eye, which I oh. thought was a oh. something I would probably never have no, even considered doing. Well, I, I always likened myself to the grandfather in my big fat. Greek wedding, you yeah. know, when he put Windex on everything. Well, I put breast milk on everything. Yeah, well, it cures it. Yeah. Well, it does. It, it's phenomenal. It's got mm. stem cells in it. It's oily. It has a natural antibiotic. It is a wonderful cure-all. Mm. I sometimes talk about the... Um, I visited a patient whose youngest uh, child, that uh, was a toddler, had terrible eczema on its cheeks. Mm. And um, she had plenty of milk. With her newborn, and I suggested she put some milk into a cup, soak a cotton ball, and pat it onto the toddler's cheeks. She said she spent hundreds of dollars on various steroid creams and whatever. Nothing ever worked. And I wish I had taken a photograph because three days later, it was gone. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And she said she was going to have to lactate for... (laughs) The rest of her life. Ten years at least. (laughs) 
<laughs> to produce the milk. <laughs> what What are some of the? I mean, obviously, breastfeeding doesn't come easily to everyone. It didn't come easily mm. to me. Um, what are some of the common issues that you see? And are there any commons? Like, do you see? Oh, okay. If you all you need to do is, you know, X Y Z. Like with me, it was like I had terribly sore nipples, and I yeah. just needed the nipple shield for a little while. And sore nipples are probably yeah. one of the big things we see. Um, that can be an attachment issue with mm. the baby and and it's I always liken it to a team sport and sometimes you know we just have to kind of get the team players together mm. it can be nipple size um, it can be the baby it can be the birth it can be uh, tongue tie it can have a lot of or lip tie yeah those things can impact on the baby's attachment and it's just a, a getting used to each other mm. phase mm. You know, doing something that you've never done before. Yeah. But even subsequent babies, you know, women can still have issues with feeding uh, initially. They might have uh, gone on to be good breastfeeders with the previous children but Mm. still have issues with the baby. And that's where having a midwife come and visit at home or having, um, you know, a lactation consultant or child and family health, all of those places you can get that little bit of extra help you need. And sometimes it's just literally a voice on the other end of the phone to talk through what's happening because Mm. most things you just need to know that what's happening is okay and will Mm. pass. This too shall pass. Um, And that that what you're going through, you're not unique. It happens to a lot of women. I think if if women realise they're part of a sisterhood... Um, all around the world going through very similar experiences. They don't feel so alone about yeah. it. Yeah. And also to take the pressure off yourself. I think there's a lot of social pressure with breastfeeding these days. And for some women who can't fully breastfeed, I feel really sorry for them because I think there can be a lot of family pressure, mm. pressure put on themselves. Mm. Um, and I always say a teaspoon of breast milk a day has health benefits. So any breast milk a woman can produce is better than nothing. Every feed Um, is doing. Yeah, it's a winner. Every feed is prescriptive. So, yeah, I see, look, most things are predictable on days. And this is why some women do feel they get um, conflicting advice Mm. because advice does change as the days go by. Um, hopefully if they're getting the same voice talking to them over the days, then it's less confusing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, most of those things will pass. Having a breast pump, you don't necessarily need one, but if it, if you do have to have one, I wouldn't buy one ahead of time, um, but, you know, you can get one if you need it. Yeah. Um, I think instead of the government handing out baby bundles they would have been better to have made some of those things accessible to Mm. women extra home visiting breast pumps if they needed them because Mm. if the government's serious about women giving breast milk then those things need to be supported yeah yeah i I just think it ultimately if breastfeeding goes well then it it does help with looking after that baby and bonding and all of those things Yeah. yeah yeah Um, you mentioned previously that you trained back in the 70s. It's a long time ago. (laughs) Have you seen, I mean, I'm sure you've seen things change Mm. a lot. What Mm. are some of the things that you've seen change that you're excited about watching that change happen and, or some things you kind of wish 
we were going back to the way... Oh, gosh, shall I start with the things? <laughs> so it's a big question. <laughs> it is a big question. Um, I think that the, improving, the improvements would be no more nurseries. Um, oh. Babies are not taken from their mother Rooming and kept in. separately. Yeah. I can remember sitting in a nursery as a student midwife with 16 screaming babies, oh. waiting for that time to tick up for them to be taken out to their mothers for the... Oh for the short breastfeeds that they were going to be allowed to have. And, uh, yeah, so having mothers with their babies, not separating mothers. Sorry, I'm just letting my dog That's all right. (laughs) Um, And what else do I like or did I have then? Yes, we were very, very regimented. We used to give sugar water to babies. Oh, wow. I mean, we must have made so many diabetics. Because they weren't allowed to have a breastfeed until a certain time. Oh, I know it just—it so makes me cry. It makes me cry. <laughs> um, so that I am not regretting the, the yeah. passing of that. Yeah. Um, I do think now there's a lot of intervention um, with with pregnancies, mm. you know, like bringing birth on. Yeah. Um, I must have looked after caesareans in 1975, but it was such a small part of my job. Mm. They were emergencies. Mm. It was such a small part of my job. But I saw a lot of uh, breech births. I saw a lot of births in the corridor. Mm -hmm. I I also did home births with my training. Um, I, I saw women who were allowed to go to term. And, yeah. and beyond. Yeah. Um, so that side of things um, I worry about. But then yeah. there are many reasons for those things being done. Uh, so it's not it's not a cut. A cut. I'll let him in. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we have a dog. We are the servants of our animals. Yeah. <laughs> Slaves to babies and fur babies. Yes, exactly. Yes, it's a a much... I think we're in a better place now as far as giving women... Empowering women after they've had their babies. I don't know that we're necessarily empowering women in the birth. Yeah. But whatever. Which is is the better one to have? I don't know. (laughs) If you could um, have an ideal set up for, you know, a woman coming home from hospital and those sort of first month to six weeks Mm. what would you like what are the sort of boxes you would love to see ticked for that postpartum period not to have to worry about uh the everyday things yeah so not to have to worry about food on the table Mm. not to have to worry about caring for older children if they're needing to go to school or whatever um to basically just totally focus on herself and that baby Ideally, um. obviously, in some women's homes, I I do go into homes where there's a single mum, yep. so she doesn't have any of that family support. So that's obviously not an ideal situation. Yeah. Hopefully, she has friends who can bring food and do things. But most of the families I go into, um, some even spoon feed the new mother. Mm. It's a kind of reverential thing, I think. Mm. She's had the baby. She's to be treated almost like a princess. So that's an extreme as well. I don't know the way I would have coped with being (laughs) spoon-fed. But (laughs) But there does seem to be, certainly in the training that I've done, there does seem to be 
a different way of thinking about the postpartum mother in our mm. culture compared mm. to a lot of other cultures. There does seem to be this thinking that in many other cultures, you know, the, the mother has been born as well. And that's something to be both celebrated mm. and also looked after. So you see these women who are being, you know, cosseted sometimes to an extreme mm. where you see that, you know, you kind of go, okay, that's too much. But you know, they're really being looked after and lavished with love and attention. Mm. Um, I don't think you see that so much in your sort of average Western, you know, no. Australian Anglo culture. No. You sort of just, you know, people people bring you, you know, a lasagna yeah. and that's lovely and really nice, but mm. it's kind of it really. Mm. Yeah. No, as a, as a new mother myself, I had my first child in France, mm. so... I was already a midwife, but the reality of having a baby 24-7, I think, was still a bit of a shock to me. But I never even assumed that I would be looked after or cared for myself. Mm. So I I didn't even feel I was missing out on anything. Whereas some of these women who perhaps aren't able to have their parents with them you know the visas have been denied or whatever's happening they really struggle with the idea that they are by themselves that they don't have that help because that culturally that has been their journey they they have always assumed that they would have a baby they would have both sets of grandparents to be caring for them and fighting over who was going to hold the baby (laughs) (laughs) while they had their lovely little rest yeah yeah and I think they they also understand the reality that a mother and baby are a unit. They're not something you can see in in separate places. They, they are together. Mm-hmm. I think James McKenna calls them the mother-baby dyad. Yeah. Um, and the fact that a baby is basically dependent on its mother for the first 18 months of its life... That's there's an acceptance in that, whereas we, I think, we rail against that for some reason. This is part of the training the baby sleep culture yeah. idea that we have this baby, but then suddenly it has to be independent of us at a yeah. very early age. Yeah. Um, we sleep with our partner. We cuddle our partner at night. We get up and have a drink of water. We go to the toilet. That's okay, but the baby doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> to do that. No. So it makes it very hard. But then getting back to your question, I think it's that support that um, I see in some of those cultures that I think works very well. Mm. Mm. Um, If there was one thing that you could tell women who might be listening to this and in the thick of that postpartum fog and (laughs) stress, what what would you tell them? This too shall pass. (laughs) It will pass. Uh, Look, I think there's there's a lot of help out there. I think you need to ask for help. Yeah, that's hard. Yes, it is. And and I think asking for help um, is not an admission of failure. Um, I think one in five women suffer with some form of postnatal depression. Mm. And I think... uh, Society is getting better at accepting that this is a reality and that if we're to look after the next generation of children, then their mothers need to be healthy and well. Yeah. Um, and there's so much help out there for people if they 
they need it. And it might just be someone to talk to. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to be medicated, uh, but there are some great medications out there that can help ease anxiety mm. um, and help women enjoy their babies. Mm. Because that's that's the thing you need to be doing at the end of the day. You don't want to be resenting this little creature. You need to be really looking forward to them waking for a feed. You mm. need to be looking forward to doing things with them and watching mm. them develop. Mm. And just before we go, um, we touched on this briefly, but I, as you were talking about it, I remember how I think Margo was about three months old and I called, I think it was, I called Tresillian or someone to be like, oh, my baby's falling asleep in my arms. You know, I'm worried that that's setting up bad habits. And the woman at the end of the line was like, don't even worry, it's fine. But what are your thoughts on that? I know that you, James McKenna has particular thoughts on that, but mm. you know, what, that was a big concern for me in the early days was, oh, if the baby sleeps on me, you know, mm. naps on me or falls asleep in my arms or only sleeps in the carrier. We're setting her up for a bad habit and oh I don't do I don't think you are. I think babies develop differently. Some babies need lots of contact, need lots of um, feeding. Because breastfeeding is not something you can be regimented about mm. because babies are constantly growing. Um There'll be days when the baby will go to its own sleep surface and you can let them sleep there, but there'll be days when it won't. It's not, it's not, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, and as I said to you earlier on before we actually started recording, you know, gorillas don't sleep train their yeah. babies. Um, and we, we need to cuddle and hold our babies. You're not going to ruin them by cuddling them too much. No baby's going to go to therapy late or adult is going to say my, my mother cuddled me too much. <laughs> well, I think now they've shown, I was reading a study recently, that babies who are held a lot, it changes their DNA yeah. for the better. Well, they release less stress hormone, yeah. um, which impacts on growth. If, if a baby is stressed, its growth is impacted, its brain development is impacted. Babies who are pacified and cuddled cry less in the long run yeah. than babies who are left to cry. Mm. Babies who are left to cry are orphanage babies. Mm. They learn to stop crying, which appears to be the sleep training, mm. but they're stopping crying because their cries aren't answered. They learn no one's coming. They learn no one's coming. And I think that's seriously sad because yeah. as humans we need to trust. And if you can't build trust if it's constantly being denied. Mm. Mm. And they will eventually get it together. Oh, Gosh, yes. And then, you know, they don't want to talk to you. And then they... Yeah. <laughs> You're very boring. <laughs> the, the most exciting person in their life at one time. <laughs> I know. But then it's that independence that you, that you can um, be glad about, really, mm. to see them independent and mm. wanting to go out into the big wide world. Mm. Um, that just brought back a memory of, to me of being really desperate to 
work out when things change because I remember you know being in week three and being like oh god and people would say oh after you know after the first six weeks that's when things mm. get better someone would be like oh no it was ten it was eight weeks when things turned around it seemed to change a lot and I remember being like post. please just make it you know eight weeks please don't let it go on do you do you have a sense of when that sort of real high intensity need you know they need you so much that's very hard to generalize yeah i think mostly by six weeks things have changed whether they've changed for the better (laughs) Um, i mean lactation takes a good two to three weeks to really settle in yeah so that by the time you're fully lactating you're producing about 900 mils of breast milk in 24 hours Mm -hmm. roughly um so baby's behavior changes once their food is changing but you know every baby is so different yeah you know that's yeah. why you can't make up rules yeah. but i i usually say to women it's getting a little bit better by six weeks mm. and i think as long as you know that things will change you mm. know that mm. i think it's the feeling that you're always going to be doing exactly this for the rest of your life like groundhog day but it, it won't be. No. It will get better. Yeah, yeah, it does get better. It does get better. And each baby, hopefully. My great-grandma who had ten told me it got really easy by the tenth. <laughs> well, surely <laughs> the, by then the eldest was yes. a de facto mother. <laughs> well, my, my grandmother was the eldest. So um, by the time the last one came along, she was about 17 oh, or 18, well, I think. there you go. Yeah. I know, different times. Oh, can you imagine? Different times. I mean, she breastfed all those children until they were about two. Yeah, wow. And there was nothing else happening in her life. She wasn't hopping in cars and driving places and going to supermarkets. And yeah. Just a different, different way to... Yeah. Being pregnant was probably the only form of contraception she had, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. For chatting. It's my pleasure. It's always lovely to chat to you. Yes, I Love enjoy getting chatting to you too. Post and birth nerd stuff yeah. on. Yeah, well, it is, it's wonderful. I, lo- I love having someone who's even interested. <laughs> I'm always interested. <laughs> Thanks. Oh. Oh, it's okay. oh. oh, there we are. <laughs>